Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're back in our Old Testament study today, and I can hardly wait. I'm joined in studio with uh, our guest, Anna Rask. We're going to bring her on in just a minute. But Peter, uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner, is my uh, leader in this study, our co- my co-leader, and we are looking forward to a full hour today on the Prophet Jonah. Oh, we really are, Bill. I mean, when we had Anna on, she talked about Daniel last time, and she just crushed it. I just yes, she there did. There were so many things about Daniel that I didn't know I didn't know, and it was so fun to listen to her yeah, about that. like first ballot yep. Hall of Fame kind of stuff. It, it really was. If yeah. anybody voted against her, that, that was a big problem. Yeah, big problem. You know, it's interesting yep. that the prophets, a lot of the times they talk about the prophets about what God has said through them, but the book of Jonah is about the prophet himself, and he's a mean, nasty guy. But he is he he is he does have a fair amount of bitterness and <laughs> and uh, and I it, it's really sort of interesting and compelling that when confronted with the message that he should tell people to repent and turn their ways that he really wanted no part of it and and I think maybe where I can sympathize with some of that if I understand the story correctly and I'm sure Anna's going to help us way better than I can is just w- when there's been such misjustice or injustice done when you've been a victim of something. Um, when you see somebody with power or with might that is, that is maybe oppressing you or people around you, the last thing you want to do is say, by the way, you too can repent. And it seemed like Jonah was faced with some of those same choices. And honestly, I sympathize a bit with his reaction, at least at first. Yeah. Well, Anna is in her PhD program, so that's in process. And she is a professor at, right here at the University of Northwestern, so we're always glad to have her. And she's uh, going to talk about Jonah today. Anna, welcome. Thank you. Really yeah. happy to be back. Oh, we're very excited. Very <laughs> excited. You. So let's let's jump into Jonah. Yeah. Today I looked at uh, really two things I want to have the audience take away, and you both hinted at it already. Uh, one that Jonah is a bad prophet. <laughs> He's just hands down a bad prophet. Uh, he is really personifying the nation of Israel in terms of their hard hearts toward their neighbors and their lack of repentance for their sins. And then the second thing I want to focus on is that God cares about all people. Uh, we're going to see two groups of Gentiles or non-Israelites in this book that God specifically extends love and care towards. And these aren't the only people in the Old Testament um, that are non-Israelites believing in God, although that is amazing even to see some. But uh, what's crazy is that, I mean, after Jesus resurrected and ascends to heaven, that's the official start to the mission uh, to the Gentiles. So it's just so amazing to see uh, some Gentiles coming to faith in God before Jesus even got there. Okay. Does Jonah have a theme? Yep. Theme of Jonah is that uh, we're center, it centers on God's decision not to destroy Israel's enemies because they did, in fact, repent. And God shows both mercy to Israel's enemies and to uh, Israel's, what I would say, most stubborn prophet. Cool. Let's put some context in this now. Yeah, I love this. Absolutely. So Jonah 1.1 starts off with very little information. All we learn is that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and 
there's not a lot of historical details included. Uh, there is one other Jonah, son of Amittai, mentioned, and that's in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verse 25. We learn that um, this man lived in Gath Hefer in northern Israel in about eight, 780 to 760 BC during the reign of Jeroboam. Now, this could be the same Jonah as the uh, Jonah in the book of Jonah, but there's no specific authorship claims. So it could have been written by Jonah, son of Amittai, another name, named na- man named Jonah, or really some other unknown author. Okay, can I ask Peter something? Yeah, absolutely. Peter, <laughs> would you have said Amittai or Amittai? What would you have said? <laughs> yeah, and because I used that throughout the week, so I appreciate that Anna has trying to clarify that because I've never been able to uh, linguistically sort that out, Anna. Yeah. Well, it actually means truth, uh, son of truth. And yeah, so that's the Hebrew word for truth, which is what... Jonah is supposed to be, and what Israel is supposed to be, the people of truth. And we'll so, see so how they do. So there could be another man with the name Jonah who wrote the book of Jonah. I mean, maybe. maybe. I, there's just no specific authorship okay. evidence. So I don't think we want to always press it too far because we don't fully well, of course, know. Of yeah. course. Okay. Yeah. But in terms of setting the book, I mean, if this is the uh, same Jonah from the book of Second Kings, uh, we're looking at the major world power being Assyria. Now, Nineveh is a major city, uh, but it did not become the capital of Assyria till 700 BC. Uh, and an important fact within the history of Israel is that in 722, uh, the Assyrians came and destroyed Israel, took its population captive, and deported them to Assyria. So if this is the right time period, Jonah would have been sent to Nineveh about 30 to 50 years before Israel's destruction. And then we actually learn that Nineveh is going to be destroyed themselves in 612 BC. And Peter, you probably knew all that, didn't you? (laughs) <laughs> I do now, Bill. I, I do now. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, indeed. Well, and I'm curious, uh, and they're a pretty brutal nation, weren't they, Assyria? I just, I know of the, in the prophecies of Amos, he talks about that, that the people of Israel be led away with books, uh, with hooks, yes, even yeah. fish hooks. And, and they're, when they, when they took a city captive, they literally strung them up with big yeah. hooks through their cheeks and kind of filed them out single file. So this really was a brutal nation to whom Jonah was sent. Yeah. And just kind of looking at the first couple of verses, we hear that God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, preach it against it because yeah, it's wickedness has come up before him, but we hear Jonah run away. And I think uh, any reasonable person that would know about Assyria would be like, well, that makes sense. I mean, this nation is terrifying. Uh, I, I would understand that call to that feeling that you'd want to run away because maybe he thought he'd be killed upon arrival. But what's interesting is that we don't actually learn Jonah's specific reasons for running away and not going to Nineveh until actually chapter four. But at least at this point, um, it's shocking disobedience. This is not how a prophet of God should act, running away after having a call to fulfill his prophetic duties. Yeah. I thought if I ever got a role in a movie, my line would be, Hey, you guys, let's get out of here. (laughs) 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 All right. Let's jump into chapter one, Anna. Yeah. So we hear that he has been called and we hear that he runs away and, uh, 
scholars debate exactly where Tarshish is. I've heard maybe a suggestion it's as far as Spain. So really, he's in the opposite direction. I mean, Nineveh's landlocked. He's getting on a boat and headed seemingly in the opposite direction. And uh, one thing that was brought up in my studies is this idea of how Jonah conceives of God. Uh, It might also give us some information of what Jonah actually believes about God. Is is Jonah thinking he can really run away from God? Uh, does he think God is just localized in Israel? Uh, a lot of pagan nations would have a variety of deities, and they would have their deities of uh, the God of the sun, the sky, the crops, the land, the water. And perhaps Jonah is thinking that once he gets out of Israel territory, he's free. And we're going to see that that's not the case. God is not simply the God of uh, Israel. He's the God of the universe. And so right away we see Jonah being a bad prophet. He is not standing before the Lord as most prophets do. He runs away. And the author is masterfully using words to signal these kind of normal prophetic roles and showing how Jonah is doing the exact opposite. Now, uh, what's interesting then is we hear how God is in control of the situation. The narrative tells us that Jonah is on a boat and uh, that God specifically is the one who sent the great wind. So again, showing he's in complete control Mm. here. And then we learn about our first group of non-Israelites. These are the sailors on the ship taking Jonah to Tarshish. And we hear that they're terrified and they're doing everything they can to survive. They are actually taking action and they're praying to their gods and trying to do everything they can to appease them and stop the storm. But conversely, Jonah, the prophet of the true God, is sound asleep in the belly of the ship. And he's not crying out to God. He's apathetic. And he has no concern for these men's lives that are on the line because of his disobedience. And the irony is that if the the captain thinks that if Jonah calls out to his God, his God might take notice. Uh, what the captain doesn't know yet that is that God is the one who sent the wind and Jonah is at fault. <laughs> yeah, pretty ironic. And we yeah. get information slowly revealed to uh, to all parties on the ship here. And uh, the sailors kind of exhaust all the standard practices of shaving, saving a ship. I mean, throwing things overboard to lighten the load. But then they see they need to find someone to blame. So they cast lots and the blame falls squarely on Jonah. Again, showing you God is in control. And what's interesting is that then the sailors try to figure out who this guy is. All of the questions they ask Jonah point to his mission, his purpose, and his prophetic calling. And Jonah has, as a prophet of God should, the opportunity to speak to them about the Lord, but he doesn't. And again, we're seeing he is violating his prophetic calling. What Jonah does share uh, is not really his mission or vocation explicitly. He does say that he fears or worships the biggest, best God of all who made everything and that his God is capable with dealing with the situation. Yeah, what, what's with that swagger? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I get that. I think he's kind of, I mean, he's not, yeah, he's not telling them that he's involved in the storm, even though he totally knows it, but he is in essence, yeah, building himself up and his God. Uh, But what's ironic is that he says he fears God and really to fear God means to show him awe and reverence. But if that's what Jonah truly viewed, uh, viewed God as, 
he wouldn't be going to Nineveh. He's not obeying God at all. He fears him in word only and not deed. Uh, The sailors fear the storm. It's the same word in Hebrew, but Jonah is apparently the one who fears God. I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, I'm so caught up in this. Rosie just let me know it's time to take a break. Oh, huh? yeah, sure. <laughs> I would have gone on for the next 45 minutes without a break. <laughs> I guess uh, we should probably do that then. Uh, we're, our guest is Anna Rask. We're talking about the, the prophet Jonah. So get your Bibles out. We're going to go through all four chapters. We'll be back in just a minute. is always wait for the trumpets, and there they are. We're back with Anna Rask. We're talking about uh, Jonah today. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are continuing our series of Old Testament people, and uh, Jonah is quite the character. Uh, Peter, I think you've got a great question you want to ask Anna before we uh, well, I, resume. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we're going to get into the part where obviously he gets chucked overboard and he's swallowed <laughs> by this fish, um, and, and so, and that's the, the, the probably the most well-known part of the story. But as we get into it, Anna, I'd be curious, too, if there's anything we learned from that to why Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 12 about just as Jonah had to spend three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will spend three days in the heart of the earth. I'm just, is there more in this story than just the fact that a a fish happened to swallow him? It sounds like there's some kind of symbolism in that uh, as we get into this part of the story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So what you're referring to is, yeah, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 through 41, Jesus is making a comparison between Jonah's experience in the fish and what he will do, and he doesn't say it explicitly, uh, but the fact that he will uh, be in the tomb for uh, three days and nights. And uh, his last portion, then verse 41, Jesus says that the the men of Nineveh, which we'll get to in chapters three and four, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And really what Jesus is saying is he's condemning uh, the Jews of his generation uh, they are in the presence of the Messiah and they're missing it. Whereas Mm. these pagans in Nineveh who just get the bare minimum, I think from Jonah in terms of a repentance message about God, uh, they believe almost instantaneously. They believe uh, in the face of a rebellious prophet and they repent. uh, It seems almost immediately. And yet time after time, Jesus is revealing himself to his generation, and they, in general, reject him. Of course, though, we do know several Jews do, of course, believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. most notably his disciples. Hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, that's so helpful. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have never made that parallel. That's incredibly helpful. Yeah, and you, you got to re- know your Old Testament to you know your New Testament to make all the connections together. Let me write that down. Yeah, there that's you go. That's going to be helpful for me <laughs> going forward. <laughs> right. But I can get us back into chapter one. Um, There's kind of a shocking moment coming in verses 10 through 16. Uh, We hear that these 
pagan sailors who do not are not uh, Israelites. They do not at this time worship the God of Israel. They actually scold Jonah, the prophet of God. Once they realize that he's running away from his God and that the storm is because of his disobedience, they are shocked and uh, that that is something that they they couldn't can't conceive a prophet of of God would do. And so they first scold him, and then Jonah tries to provide at least one suggestion to stop the storm, and he says, "Throw me overboard." But this is where the uh, the sailors uh, are portrayed much more positively. They grow better and better while Jonah looks worse and worse in the story. They say, no, we couldn't throw you overboard. We have your blood on our hands, so, so to speak. We'd be held accountable for killing you. So they first try to do everything to save this guy's life, even though he's done barely anything to save theirs. And we then hear that they cry out to Jonah's God, not Jonah. Once Jonah's finally thrown in, the storm stops. Uh, the Hebrew is very specific in using the word yara to fear. It says the sailors no longer yara, fear the storm. They now yara the Lord, fear the Lord. They view him with awe and repentance and they even, and reverence, they even offer a sacrifice and make vows to him. They repent and seemingly convert to following the Lord. But there would have been, I think, one other solution to stopping the storm, and I think that's Jonah's repentance. Uh, you hear the sailors cry out to God, but Jonah still hasn't in chapter 1, even after being told by the sailors to do to do just that. He stays stagnant, he fails to act like, like a prophet, and he never repents. The reality is that he would rather die, it seems, than go to Nineveh. But again, we still don't explicitly know why he's so adamant about not going to Nineveh. So in chapter one, we see even a reluctant servant will not get in God's way of God saving people. God will save who he wants to save. And here is our first group of people God saves, Gentile sailors. Wow. Is there an application for us? I think, well, one, we see God's power and sovereignty on display in this chapter and that God can thwart people's activities, such as uh, Jonah running away, but he also can motivate them uh, namely the sailors, uh, are so awestruck about what has just happened, uh, and he draws them to himself. And that brings up a good point for us of whatever God calls us to do, how are we responding to him? Are we taking up the call, or are we making excuses and running away? That's a big question. Yeah. Big question. Yeah, and each person definitely has their own personal application to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, the story of Jonah does provide some conviction there. Yeah. All right, yeah. let's, Peter. If you if you don't have anything else, let's move into chapter two. Yeah, I want to make sure That'd we cover great. everything this hour. Yeah, chapter yep. two is a little weird. Uh, it's uh, not narrative; it's poetry. And this is when, yes, Jonah is swallowed by the fish. Uh, God's again in control of the situation. The the Hebrew says that He uh, appoints the storm, but also appoints a fish. And uh, the word is simply fish. It's not whale. It actually is fish, and it's really nothing special. It's just a creature that lives in the sea, and it's the setting, the setting to keep Jonah safe, and it allows him to pray. And I don't want to just pass over that nonchalantly. Jonah finally prays. He finally prays in chapter two. We've never heard him pray uh, uh, up until this point. So he's finally ready to do so. Yeah, it just occurred to me, too, that that God used the fish to keep him safe. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, Jonah does view it as salvation, but he's also distressed that he's in a fish. <laughs> as, so, would no, as would the normal person. would, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, so this uh, is his prayer, and it's in the form of poetry. And while you might think this would be a prayer of confession, like, oh, I'm, I, I messed up, I've sinned against you, God, it's actually a prayer of thanksgiving. So... We want to be careful, though. It sounds positive, but as I just give a couple points, uh, I think we will shortly see that this is not a prayer of confession. This is not Jonah reestablishing his faith. Um, Jonah is still a bad prophet. So Jonah prays his prayer. He thanks God for saving him, and he prays actually stereotypical language from the book of Psalms, the Psalms of Thanksgiving. He's praying a combination of Psalms, kind of like going through the the, the Psalter and quoting his favorite lines or relevant um, uh, uh, passages. And he spends most of his time in his prayer focusing on a cry for help. He's distressed about the fish. And if you read carefully, you'll still see that he is playing the victim. He actually says, uh, you hurled me into the depths. He is blaming God for his situation. So uh, I hope you can see if you read through this prayer, it still is quite self-righteous, especially verses eight through nine. And I'll just quickly read those here. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Now you might just kind of blow past that, but who might he be referring to? Well, I think it's the sailors that worshipped what he saw were worthless idols, false gods. But he is thrown in to the water before he sees the sailors offering sacrifices and making vows to the Lord. So he's already still hitting back at those he thinks he's better than. And then he really ends his poem, ends his prayer with uh, verse 9. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And I think what we see here is that Jonah is trying to manipulate God, just like any other pagan would do to manipulate their deity to get them to do what they wanted. Jonah wants to do things his way instead of God's way. He wants to appease God by promising to make sacrifices to him and vow vows. Jonah wants to be left alone, kind of left out of God's plan. From this poem, it seems Jonah would rather be home safely back in Jerusalem, quote unquote, worshiping God. And what's interesting is that verse 9 is actually a quote from Psalm 3, verse 8. And if you read the whole psalm, it says, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And I find that so telling because I think what it's indicating is that Jonah doesn't see or doesn't want to see that God can offer mercy and grace to other people, such as the sailors or we'll see the Ninevites. Jonah only wants God's blessing on himself and his people. So I don't think we have a change of heart here. I used to read this and think, oh, he's back on track, and then he'll go to Nineveh. But no, he thinks he's better than the sailors, the ones who actually feared God. And he's giving thanks for his own deliverance, but still makes snarky comments along the way, showing he has a false understanding of God. He praises God's salvation and that God saves those who forsake him. The irony is that Jonah is the one who's actually forsaking God. He's been shown mercy but he does not deserve it, which is, I guess, in essence, the sense of mercy. We don't deserve it. Wow. So are we only crying out to God and try to get what we want? There's the question. That's another very good question. Yeah. I mean, 
how do we talk to God? Are we mm-hmm. doing, viewing him as a vending machine, as a butler? Uh, are our hearts aligning with what we're proclaiming about God? Uh, Jonah's theology was right, but his theology didn't match how he was living. Uh, so are we only crying out to God to get what we want? And are we simply giving him lip service or do we truly believe what we say about mm-hmm. God? Anna Rask is my guest. We're talking about Jonah. We're going to come back and continue the next two chapters of Jonah. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are continuing our series of people in the Old Testament. We'll be right back. Back with Anna Rask. She is an old test. She's working on her PhD in Old Testament theology. It's in process. We're glad to have her talking today about Jonah. We've gone through two chapters, and right before we went to break, we had some lovely applications about are we really just crying out to God to try to get what we want? Is he a big vending machine? Peter, I think you've got a follow up question to that. Yeah, just within all of that, I was really compelled by the idea that um, Jonah appears to be repenting, but he really isn't that much. He's just trying to maybe get something out of the deal. And I don't know, Anna, that strikes home. I I just think about how many times that maybe if I'm in an argument with my wife or if I'm uh, maybe with some students or possibly in the business world or something, how often I might say that I'm sorry, but I don't actually mean it. And uh, what do we see from the life of Jonah to get to that place of alignment where where you actually do mean it when when Mm -hmm. you say it? What needs to happen? Well, just to spoil the ending, I don't think he ever does in this book. I never, Mm -hmm. I don't think Mm -hmm. he ever gets there. And that's the sad part. Um, God's been so merciful and gracious with him, and yet he has a hard heart at the end. And so it's convicting for us to, to use this as a negative object lesson. Don't be like Jonah, uh, but having a humble heart, uh, being willing to uh, repent, uh, being willing to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and being willing to maybe let others in our life who see our maybe hypocrisy or hard hearts to call that out in us and not so hold on to our uh, our pride that we're unwilling to um, repent and humbly come before God. I'm just curious, what is the artist's depiction of Jonah in the belly of the fish that you think of? I watched a lot of the Jonah vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's Is he wrapped probably, in seaweed? Yeah, or, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, I see him in a little rowboat. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, it, I mean, those are at least... The, the VeggieTales one was a helpful reminder of, hey, what was the message of this story? But, uh, yeah, um, who knows what it was like. All right. Let's move on to Chapter 3. Yeah, uh, what's so interesting in Chapter 3 is that it nearly par- uh, par- verbatim parallels ch- uh, the beginning of chapter one. Very similar wording, um, except this time in chapter three, God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. He doesn't talk about their evil or wickedness. Jonah is simply supposed to speak to them. But again, we're not told what he's actually supposed to say. And lo and behold, this time Jonah obeys. And his prior disobedience was a complete failure. He wound up basically back in the same place with it seems nearly the same message but yes he is finally fulfilling the role of a prophet which is to hear a message from god and proclaim it to an audience 
And verse 4 is the only time we hear what Jonah actually says to the people. And it's just mere words. He goes into the city, goes a day's journey, and calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, this verse raises a few questions. <laughs> That's some good preaching. Yep. <laughs> yeah. One, it says he goes one uh, a day's journey. And it doesn't say explicitly, but does, does this mean he only preached for one day? And again, all we hear him say is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He doesn't tell them why. He doesn't tell them to repent. He doesn't tell them anything about the Lord. He doesn't offer them any hope, nor does he explicitly say what they've done wrong. Now, this could be a smaller part of a longer oracle or message, but maybe the author is simply trying to get across the point that Jonah perhaps did the bare minimum. And what's fascinating is that in verse 4 is the last time Jonah is mentioned in this chapter. Could that also leave a connotation of maybe he left after one day? I don't know. But verse 5 is simple and yet so profound. It starts off by saying, the Ninevites believed God. They've proclaimed a fast, all of them from the greatest to the least, and put on sackcloth. And did they really just believe after one day? I mean, if what we read is all Jonah actually said, then clearly the Holy Spirit was working in them because Jonah gave such a brief message. And they seemingly don't even take 40 days to repent. They don't know a lot about God. At least from what is recorded in the text, Jonah barely said anything. His message to the people um, and the people's repentance could be maybe a bit hyperbolic in this narrative. The author might be trying to simply emphasize what God's doing and how the people are responding. Uh, but even though no call of repentance is listed in what Jonah says, the people in fact repent. The most important people repent and the least of uh, important people repent. The king even sits in sits in ashes. And what's ironic, if you've read the other prophetic books in the Old Testament, is that nobody ever listens to the prophets. This is the one time someone actually listens to a prophet and does what they say. I mean, Jeremiah is persecuted, Isaiah is persecuted, nobody listens. But this prophet says, I don't know, what, five words or something? And immediate repentance. And I just find that so crazy that immediately, uh, probably the worst sermon out there, and these people <laughs> repent. We see that the king, I mean, cries out and he uh, sends an official decree to all people to repent. And he's wondering if this God will turn from what he planned to do. He seems to understand God's angry because of their sin and that they could die because of his anger. And then verse 10 says, they repented. God turned from his evil ways. He saw from from his uh, turned from their evil ways, and then God relented from what he had planned. And this is really, I mean, what Jesus was talking about, as we talked about in Matthew twelve. Immediate repentance. They heard the worst sermon, and yet they humbled themselves. Whereas the Israelites had God incarnate in front of them, and so many failed to believe. So if Jonah really said those few words. We see that there is power in the word of God. The narrators focus so much on the obstacles to the Ninevites' repentance, but God is clearly eager to save, and he's merciful to those who do repent. And so just a little application at the end of this chapter, nobody is beyond God's salvation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to remember Old Testament and New Testament, the, even the most unlikely of characters that we encounter are still eligible for salvation. Anna, why did Jonah hate the, Ninev the Ninevites so, so much? Well, 
again, we think it's because, at least from what verse one, uh, verse chapter one, uh, just talked about that they're wicked. They're the enemies of Israel. It seems like that uh, is his motivation. But if you turn right over very next verses in chapter four, that's actually not true. That's not his primary motivation for hating the Ninevites and not wanting to go. Uh, I mean, it sounds like really good news that the people repented. But verse one of chapter four says, this seemed wrong to Jonah, very wrong. And he became an angry. And we finally get our reason for why Jonah ran away. And it's not because he was afraid of them, because they were such an evil, uh, violent people group. Jonah says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and a God who relents from calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than live. So, yeah, Nineveh was evil and scary, but it was God's reputation, not the Ninevites' reputation, that caused him to run. Basically, Jonah ran away because of God's character. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to repent or for God to show them mercy. Jonah thinks God's mercy is for Israel alone. And the reality is his attitude is, I'd rather be dead, God, than live in a world where you show mercy to Nineveh. Wow. So how high is his drama level? Well, I mean, this is the first of two times he says he wants to die in this chapter. So what's up with that? (laughs) Again, he is a bad prophet. He doesn't repent. And I think it's just aggrandized in the next two verses. He's not willing to accept that God's decision to be merciful is final. And this is kind of... Even, I mean, it's humorous in verses 5 and 6. He goes to the east side of the city. He builds a little shelter and waits to see what would happen. I mean, the fact that he builds a shelter shows he's staying for a while. (laughs) He is going to stay until something happens. He's stubborn. And he is not willing to accept that God is just going to be merciful and not judge Nineveh. He's just going to not give them what they deserve. And Jonah is not okay with that. And he didn't want to come here in the first place. Uh, but here's just the character of our God. He's still merciful to Jonah. He causes a plant to grow and give him shade. And I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, right uh, smack dab in the Middle East. I mean, hot, dry. And this is makes Jonah happy. He gets a plant. It, it, give, it gives him shade from the hot sun. But then we see God's in control. Same word is used. God appointed the storm. He appointed the fish. He appoints a worm to eat the plant. And when the sun rises, there's an east wind. It scorches Jonah's head. He grows faint. And here we are again. He wanted to die. It'd be better for me to die than to live. And this is where we start to move into Jonah's physical and more importantly, theological comfort. Jonah's focused so much on his comfort rather than God's justice. He is so concerned about the plant more than anyone else he's met in the book so far. He cares more about the plant and he cares more about himself. And the book ends actually quite abruptly. Uh, We get in verses 10 and 11 saying, you've been concerned about this plant, but you didn't tend to it. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And that's the end. (laughs) I mean, you don't hear Jonah's final perspective, but the point is 
profound. And so if we can just spend the last few minutes here just talking about the points of this book. I mean, God makes a very stark comparison in these final few verses. He is showing Jonah that he has compassion on the people of Nineveh. He does not have compassion on the plant, even though he has given life to both the plant and the Ninevites. But Jonah only has compassion on the plant. None for these people. The plant lived one day and Jonah didn't plant it. Jonah didn't cause it to grow. He wants to die when the plant is killed. He's just as mad about a weed dying as a city living. And so we see that he values his personal comfort over people. The plant benefited Jonah and that's why he cared about it. And this plant situation exposes, as I said, his personal and theological comfort. Jonah only wanted God's blessing and salvation to be on Israel, but God has universal interest. He is not only concerned about Israel, he cares about the world. He appointed Israel as the means to, sal- uh, means to carrying the message of salvation uh, from God to the rest of the nations. Mm, so good. Anna Rask is our guest. We're talking about Jonah. If you missed any of this, you're going to definitely want to go to the podcast and hit it from the start because this has been a fantastic study. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to do some summary work on the book of Jonah. And if you uh, um, are familiar with what we do on Wednesdays at this time, we are studying people from the Old Testament. And if you've got someone in particular that Peter and I have to do some study on and and report on, let us know what it is. You can always text us suggestions to 877-933-2484. We'll take a short break and be right back with our special guest, Anna Rask. classroom with Anna Rask. We're talking about Jonah today. Been a fantastic study. She is in her PhD program in Old Testament theology, and we are now going to do some summary work on the four chapters that we've discussed. Yeah, I actually forget, failed to mention one of the most important things uh, about this book is this book is not written to the Ninevites. <laughs> uh, it's actually written to the people of Israel. And so trying to think about this book and how the Israelites would have perceived it. What would they have thought about when they read it? And I think that's an important point to remember as we just kind of wrap up the whole book here is that this is not a pretty presentation of Israel's prophet or of the nation. Uh, The book is written in a way to in essence, have Jonah personify the nation of Israel. He's a negative object lesson. He's representing the people of Israel in most likely the 8th century BC. This book is really a condemnation against the people. And so it's not going to be fun to read. Uh, In general, I think we can look at this and say those to whom mercy was most clearly offered, namely Israel. I mean, we have the whole Old Testament about talking about how God set his special love upon Israel. In general, they rejected it. They turned to idols and perverted God's justice. And ultimately, both the northern and and, uh, southern nation went into exile because of that. But 
the people to whom mercy was just barely offered, the Ninevites, they quickly accepted it. So too the sailors. The Ninevites especially, they realized they deserved judgment and they needed to turn to God. But Israel didn't think they deserved judgment. They didn't think they needed to repent. And ironically, years later, probably just mere decades, the nation of Assyria, which is what Nineveh was a part of, will be the nation that God used to judge the people of Israel. So Jonah loved God's mercy. He loved God's salvation, which is evident in chapter 2 which is great, but he was not willing to have that mercy and salvation extended to other people. So too, Israel thought that some people do and some people don't deserve God's mercy. Namely, the Gentiles don't deserve it. So this book is really, I mean, a powerful book about evangelism too. God's mercy is for those who don't deserve it. That's the whole point of mercy. And God is constantly trying to help Jonah see outside of his own self-centered world. God shows Jonah abundant grace and mercy throughout this entire book, even though he's the one in rebellion. And I think that this book shows us people are important to God. He's mighty to save. He is loving towards all people and desires them to see see them in a right relationship with him. He's gracious and merciful to all who turn to him, even those who don't know a lot about him. You don't have to have all this knowledge before coming to God. The sailors and Ninevites barely knew him, and yet they wanted to turn to him. And back to Jonah, we see God's patient. He's patient with people even when they act against him. God does give Jonah time to repent, even though, as I have tried to argue, we never actually hear him do it. And just to wrap up, we also need to bring Jesus into this. Uh, If you can compare Jesus and Jonah, Jesus did what Jonah would not do. Jesus obeyed God, his father, and went to a place where great evil had risen up, and he made a way for grace and mercy to break in at the cost of his own sacrifice. He was selfless, and through him, mercy was made possible to those who don't deserve it, namely you and me. And I'm struck again by Romans 6.23, saying the wages or the consequences of sin is death. And we all sin, and we all deserve death, but the point of mercy is God is not giving us what we deserve. Jesus took upon it, that upon himself instead. And to finish it, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So as I tell my students here at Northwestern, the gospel is not limited to a certain ethnic group. All who come to him will be saved. So the gospel message is incredibly inclusive. All are welcome, but it's exclusive in the sense that it's only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amazing. Anna. Yeah. Anna, on that last point, too, just about who gets to be in and who gets to be out, I think it's already really convicting to be thinking about wishing that people could be saved that you don't like, or maybe, as we were talking about at the top of the hour, right, that were the perpetrators of the suffering. It's one thing to say, well, I guess I can still desire that they'd be saved, but I think there's another piece of the puzzle here that in the New Testament, it's not just that they're saved and then they stay over there. They're mm-hmm. actually grafted into the community. Like there, there's an expectation in that, that there's then some sort of relationship moving forward. I, I was just wondering if you could speak to that a bit about that extra step that says, boy, I guess I can desire that you'd be saved. But then what does it mean to actually be in relationship with somebody if they do repent and are saved and now they're in the same community as you? Right. Yeah. I mean, that can be difficult. We can maybe 
be guilty of thinking that we get to judge in a sense who should and should not be recipients of God mer- God's mercy. And we maybe are all guilty of that at some point okay. saying, but I really don't like this person or something. <laughs> but I think if God sets his mercy and love and grace upon someone, um, as hard as might, might be, we might not get along with everybody, um, but we are called to love, love our enemies, love our neighbors, and they might not be your best friend, but they are now part of the kingdom of God, a brother and sister in Christ, and that is a new identity, a new relationship that makes us family. And so, no, not everyone will be necessarily your best friend, but we have to have a a new perspective of this person's now in the family of God, and maybe... um, my pastor was just talking about uh, the point of uh, where God puts us, uh, about being an influence of where God wants you. I, I, he may want us in relationship with that person. Maybe we have a role to play in helping point them more to Jesus or helping them grow in their faith, but um, that may requiring us to set aside some of our judgments or uh, unkind thoughts about them or something. Uh, But it's just, I think, always a reminder to bring it back to ourselves that we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve uh, Jesus' salvation. Uh, We are all enemies of God before coming to Christ. So uh, what we deserved was death. So if we are so unwilling to extend it to others, maybe we need to come back to ourselves and say, well, I I wasn't really worthy of deserving it in the first place. How could I have any say about who, in fact, should deserve it after me? So, Anna, maybe a question after going through the book of Jonah is, are there people in our own lives that God is asking us to extend mercy to? Yeah. I, I, yeah, and I think everyone needs to think about that. And I mean, it's it, poignant in my own life well as well. I mean, there are people that run me the wrong way or get frustrated with and, uh, I'm always brought to passages, not just about mercy or grace, but also forgiveness. Uh, Ephesians uh, talks a lot about that. We forgive because Christ first forgave us. And just being struck by that reality is I'm only capable of doing something because God first showed it to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets back to the idea of like, are you pointing out the log in someone else's eye before you take out the speck in your own? Or no, I said that wrong. The speck in someone else's (laughs) eye before taking out the log in your own eye. Um, I mean, are we too quick to call out someone else's sin without really recognizing our own first? Well said. Yeah, I just, it sounds like to me, Anna, that if somebody is just, for somebody listening today that maybe is struggling with somebody else, that may be one of the roads towards healing. It doesn't mean that it just justifies the other person's action no. if they are really causing harm, but but one of the roads towards healing is just to be reminded again of your own sense of depravity, your own sense of what you bring to the table, that then that's at least a step in this process, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially, yeah, in situations of... Um, past hurts or abuse or something. I mean, still be careful with uh, people in your life. And there are certainly good boundaries to have. Um, But people will hurt us in this life. And we we need to be careful. But at the same time, maybe we can at least in our private life with the Lord, um, try and at least extend them that love and forgiveness in our heart, even if we aren't always able to show it uh, in a very practical way on a day-to-day basis or something. I do find some of the passages in Jonah interesting, some of the details, like in Jonah chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, and the Lord commanded the fish <laughs> and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Could you imagine a big fish <laughs> vomiting on dry land and in, in that vomit is you? <laughs> Quite unpleasant. <laughs> oh, that is not a pleasant thought at all. 
it's a shocking book at, at times. I mean, there are crazier things in the Bible that have happened too, but uh, there are, yeah, some surprises and the fact that the Lord commanded it too. Um, God is definitely behind all these forces of nature throughout the book. Yeah, and I sometimes hear people say, well, these things can't be true. These are just stories that make a point, right? But they're they're more like Aesop's fables. But there was no sense among the Jews back then that these stories weren't actually true. They they clearly were teaching a theological point, but these yeah. stories actually happened at the same time, right? Yeah, I mean, and the fact that Jesus preaches about Jonah, I mean, does lend a certain credence to uh, the historicity of it. But, I mean— I don't get too hung up on that. Okay, I can't prove it actually happened. Well, I, fine. I'm just going to keep moving forward. Uh, but yeah, it, from what it seems like is, yeah, they uh, took it with a, I mean, a sense of reliability. But yeah, at this point, I mean, God is capable of doing so much more greater things than having a guy be swallowed by a fish. But at the same time, what we can focus on now is, I mean, the message we get from this story. Just a minute left, Anna. I got a nice comment from sure. a listener. Fascinating conversation about Jonah. One reason that the Ninevites listened to Jonah was that their god Dagon was supposed to be half man, half fish. Yeah, there is an interesting story because um, Nineveh really means house of fish uh, or fish house. Okay. And uh, that's just very interesting that I, some have speculated, well, oh, a man just coming from a fish and their yeah. God is the fish God. So yeah, there's there's some connection there, which I find yeah. is a bit ironic. I do find it interesting, all the sailors on the boat as the storm is raging and they're all calling out to their gods. Mm-hmm. Well, what kind of chaos that must have been. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. with a lot of sailors going, ar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, a, that's an official Hebrew term. <laughs> yes, right? exactly. That's in the Hebrew, yeah. yeah. Anna, thanks so much. It's Thank been a blast. You. Yeah, Peter, it's been, what a great study. Oh, so fun. I just yeah. learned so much in there. Just like Daniel, right? There's just so yeah. much we didn't know, and that was just fabulous. You're welcome back anytime, Anna. Thank you. Thanks. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for joining me. If you missed any of this, oh, I promise you want to go back and hear this hour uh, from the beginning, go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the podcast. Maybe you can send it to a friend, someone that, who loves Jonah as well. We'll take, uh, we'd love to have your, your input, too. If you want Peter and I to tackle someone from the Old Testament, let us know who it is. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.